almost every day, the cases, the death toll, the spread of coronavirus is rising. On this Saturday night, does Canada have its first case of the new coronavirus? Beijing has confirmed the number of people who have died from a new type of respiratory virus in China has now passed 40. The death toll from a deadly viral outbreak of the new coronavirus spiked to 80 as... Today, the World Health Organization declaring a global health emergency. There are now more than 7,700 confirmed cases worldwide. The death toll climbing to 170 in China, where cases are now confirmed in every province and 20 countries around the world. And so today is a special episode where we'll be interviewing an infectious disease specialist on what clinicians should know about the coronavirus. Today, I am joined by Dr. Marty Fried, Steve Liu, and I'm Clem. And we will be interviewing Dr. Christina Fisk. She's an assistant professor of medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases at Vanderbilt University, where she's also the associate program director for the fellowship there. And just as a heads up, this episode will count for CME credit with ACP, so click on the link in the show notes, answer three questions, and get CME credit. Hi, Dr. Fisk. Welcome to the show. We're so grateful to learn from you today. Thank you for having me. And is it okay if we call you Chris or Dr. Oh, yeah. Fisk? Yep. That's great. So, you know, by way of background, can you just give us a little bit of information about what makes this particular coronavirus different from other coronaviruses like the ones we've seen in SARS or MERS? Yeah, so coronavirus is widely distributed in humans and in animals. And until about, you know, a few years ago or several years ago, there were really only four known um, and they caused the common cold. So between 10 and 30 percent of a common cold every year is caused by coronaviruses. But then SARS hit right in 2002 and then MERS also hit. And so those were novel coronaviruses that had kind of hopped over from animal species into humans. And so the thing that makes this so novel, I guess, is that it's basically a different genotype than those other two. That's how it got the name novel. But when you look at the genotype, it's actually about 70% similar to SARS. So it does have some similarities, which could be helpful in predicting things about this disease and maybe even coming up with a vaccine or, or things like that. So I think the, the novel part of it is really gets down to the nitty gritty about the actual genotype of the virus. You know, most viruses that jump from an animal to a human, like the avian flu, for example, you know, it's kind of a dead end. It jumps over, but then there isn't human to human transmission of those. And so this is something even more than that, where not only has it mutated to the point where it can uh, infect humans, but it's mutated to the point that now you have human to human trans transmission. Can you walk us through what's the range of symptoms that we're seeing with this novel coronavirus? Yeah, well, I mean, that's part of the tricky part. And, and you wonder if it actually started earlier than what they initially thought. It was because it was occurring right in the middle of winter respiratory virus season, and that is the main symptoms. So it's majority of cases have like a flu-like illness, fever, cough are very prevalent, as well as myalgia, fatigue, less diarrhea or GI illness than that was seen with SARS and MERS. And, um, and then some people obviously progress to severe pneumonia, bilateral infiltrates on chest x-ray. Leukopenia was initially included as part of the case definition. So I think that that's been pretty prevalent as far as lab abnormalities go. But that's, you know, of course, there's, I think one of the most important things to remember is that there's going to be a spectrum of diseases. So it's going to go all the way from mild and potentially even asymptomatic 
shedding, which hasn't been proven yet, all the way to severe ARDS, pneumonia, and even death. And so that's, you know, kind of interesting part about this that we're still learning. So as you mentioned earlier, it's the peak of the flu season now, and the symptoms that you just described there sound a lot like the flu. Mm -hmm. So are there things that you can use to like differentiate between coronavirus and the flu? Are they all just ILIs? And by ILIs, Steve means influenza-like illnesses. Not that I've, yeah, it's pretty much ILIs. And, you know, one of the criteria for defining a case was fever, cough, of course, uh, exposure to China or having recently been there, but then a uh, no other identified cause such as flu or metanumavirus or all these other viruses, because they all are very similar. And actually, one problematic part, I don't, I'm sure you guys have like a respiratory viral panel or, or something at your hospitals, but coronavirus is on that panel. <laughs> and so it can be very misleading. There's been a lot of misinformation that all of a sudden you get a respiratory viral panel back that says coronavirus and everybody is, you know, kind of um, freaking out, but it's not the novel coronavirus. But yeah, there's not a lot of distinguishing factors that, that are known yet anyway, except the epidemiologic history. Say we have a patient who's from China mm -hmm. uh, or been, has been exposed to someone who was recently in China, comes in with these respiratory symptoms. What should we do when we do suspect exposure or suspect the, the novel coronavirus? So the first thing is to mask the patient. You want to put them in a room by themselves with the door closed, preferably in airborne isolation. I mean, we think that it's spread by droplet, and I mean, that's how that's where SARS and MERS actually helps us because that's how they were spread, and so we're extrapolating from that. But airborne is probably is is best, and that's what CDC recommends. And then contact the infection control at your healthcare facility. And if you are like maybe in the outpatient setting. Maybe you don't have like an infection control nurse you can call, you can call your local or state health department. And then they contact the CDC and they coordinate testing. You know, that's, that's pretty much, but they will coordinate getting the samples for testing and all, all of that kind of stuff. But I think the most important part is to, to mask the patient and, and isolate them. I, I had actually a quick question about um, the case definition, because I heard that likely will end up changing. I don't know if it just changed today, because I that was telling me that they are screening everybody that is China mm. coming from China. Um, and then I think I heard you say that as well, not just Wuhan. Is that right. accurate? Or? That's what I um, most recently, I mean, of course it's changing. Um, but I guess when I looked at the actual CDC, it did say Wuhan, but it's been reported in all provinces of China at this point. So if it hasn't changed, I, I think it will soon. So you mentioned that um, we can contact our local infection control or state um, infection agencies about testing for it. So can you just talk a little bit about what the testing entails? Like how are what are we what are we submitting and um, yeah. how does it get? Confirmed? And this is actually really amazing. And this again is something that I think came out of SARS and MERS is that they published the genotype within a week. And we're very forthcoming with it. And then that enabled everybody to, you know, come up with diagnostic tests. So 
I, I'm just really still amazed at how it's mobilized um, quickly. Like they they were on it right away, and as far as the, the testing goes, but it's basically a PCR-based test. And so the several respiratory specimens are supposed to be collected if possible, so nasopharyngeal as well as uh, a deeper specimen, a BAL or, you know, a lavage, I guess, if the patient gets spronked, but maybe even a deep sputum. And then that gets um, collected, sent to the CDC at this point, and then there's a 24 to 48 hour turnaround time. Now, the CDC, from what I've read, expects within the next week to be able to have um, the local health departments, state health departments, be able to do their own testing, kind of like Zika. You know, so now, you know, before you had to send all the tests to the CDC, but then a few months into the whole, you know, outbreak and concern, then it became you would send it to the state and they would be able to do it. So I think that that, but they're just finishing the the testing, but hopefully that'll roll out soon. So the teaching point there is that it's not the positive coronavirus that comes in your regular respiratory That's panel. Exactly right. It's really going to be the one you're going to send out, do as much to get as much good sputum or right. Spaces in the upper respiratory tract right. as possible. That's right. That's that's a really important to clarify. So while we're waiting for the CDC in this mm-hmm. twenty-four to forty-eight hour turnaround time, are we keeping patients um, isolated? Yes. So if they get admitted, they're put in airborne isolation, contact, and then everybody needs to wear goggles or face mask when they go in. Not everybody gets admitted though. And you can actually make the argument not to admit somebody if they don't need to be admitted, because as we know with SARS, there was a lot of nosocomial transmission. Um, and so you don't, and you know, unfortunately the hospital is full of people with medical problems, right, who are, seem to be more at risk for worse outcomes with this virus. So the CDC actually has an entire part of their website dedicated to how to handle home isolation and how to minimize the amount of caregivers that are in the house um, and, and things like that. And, and for the patient to call ahead to their doctor before they show up and say, I just got here from Wuhan and I have a fever and a cough, you know. Um, so, uh, so, yeah, I don't think everybody needs to be, you know, admitted. But uh, during the 24 to 48 hours, there needs to be some sort of isolation. I was actually kind of curious, too, about um... – I remember hearing a little bit about the political um, influences on whether or not hospitals are going to be using their biocontainment units that were like mm-hmm. developed for Ebola. Do you have yeah. thoughts on that specifically? What are you guys are doing at Vanderbilt? So yeah, so we have a biocontainment unit, um, as I'm sure you guys do too. Our, but you don't need more than airborne and contact and goggles, face mask. So that's good because I think a lot of places, so if you have an airborne isolation room, you should be able to take care of one of these patients. And so for those folks that uh, are admitted, say, are proven to be coronavirus positive, uh, do they have antivirals? Um, we heard a little bit about some stuff, but it sounds like a lot of it is mechanistic. Like, can you tell us more about that? Yeah. So I actually didn't know about this until earlier this week when there was a kind of a thread going around on this emergent infections network. But I guess there's two things. One is, well, there's a few. So one is Kaletra, which we used to use all the time for HIV, and now I'm sure there's stockpiles of it because it's really not used anymore for HIV. But um, I guess there was, uh, is particularly in MERS, I think that there, there was some data um, that, but they used historical controls. And so there's never been like a randomized controlled trial. The most recent Lancet paper of this current outbreak suggested that they are doing a randomized control trial currently of Kaletra versus not. So those are two, Kaletra is a combination of two antiretroviral um, medications. And then there's another one called 
remdesivir. So it was tested for Ebola, actually, oh. um, and was not successful. Um, so it is also being used for, both of those are being used for, for compassionate use right now in China. So it'll kind of be interesting to, to find out. And then I was hearing more that they, or I was listening um, or reading something from Tony Fauci that they did come up with a stockpile of monoclonal antibodies after the SARS epidemic. And because there's so much similarity between the two viruses, maybe those will have some effectiveness. I did see that steroids are really not effective um, and are, are not recommended. Um, and interferon and ribavirin were also tried during SARS and MERS, and they, they really didn't do anything either. So supportive care is the, is the, is the line right now. <laughs> Uh, can you talk more about the vaccine or ideas about what it would entail? Because you mentioned at the top as well. Dr. Fauci at the NIH, from what I was reading, apparently, or what they're doing is they're trying to base it off one of the main virulence factors, which is this protein S or the spike. And so that uh, enables fusion with the target protein and is also the target of neutralizing antibodies. So now that they have, and interestingly, he said that technology has come so far that they don't need the actual virus to generate the vaccine. They just need the genotype. Um, and they have that now. So he said, and I found this really interesting, that it took three and a half months to come up with a Zika vi uh, vaccine to put it in phase one. And he thinks this is going to be even faster. Um, and in less than three months, it'll be phase one with the goal to like move it ahead in case it became like a pandemic. And then you could start to distribute it um, as part of like a treatment regimen. But that's all I know about the initiatives is just that, that it's going to be aimed at that virulence factor of the vaccine. But Gotcha. And I think you've, you've already spoken to this a little bit, but I think thinking more globally, it sounds like we're learning from each epidemic, the SARS, MERS epidemic, and kind of how is that informing what we're doing right now with the impending coronavirus? And particularly, I think it's fascinating that they're quarantining millions of people yeah. in China. Yeah. Um, I don't remember that they did that before, but I'm curious if you can kind of just speak historically about what yeah. we're learning each step of the way. My understanding is that it's unprecedented to quarantine millions of people. Um, and I, I think obviously the good effect of that is to limit the spread of the infection, right? And SARS showed us that immediate infection control was key to controlling the outbreak. Um, but I think that there's some disadvantages. So one is panic, right? So you're going to induce a lot of panic. Two is if you're not letting people out, you're not going to let as many people in um, either. And so relief, you know, medical relief for the physicians over there um, and supplies. So there's been a lot of reports of doctors not having enough supplies, not having enough hazmat suits. Um, I don't know if you saw this in the reports, but they're actually wearing adult diapers um, because they are exhausted and they don't want to take the time. And also because they don't want to rip their hazmat suit and they take it off because they don't have a replacement. Wow. Um, and I saw that in two different articles, actually. My so, um, so I think there's just, I, I think it remains to be seen how effective such a widespread quarantine is and what the effects will be and if it works. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, can you imagine trying to quarantine like New York City if if their first no. case was in New York? Like, would I that mean, ever happen? No, I mean, yeah, I can't even, I can't even imagine. So there's this concept in epidemiology called R naught, which I think stands for the reproduction rate of an infectious agent. And it's a way for it to think about how contagious um, an infection is. 
Chris, can you comment more about the novel coronavirus and its R naught? It's how many people will be infected from one case. So two, on average, two people will become infected from an active case of the novel coronavirus. For comparison, 12 to 18 people are infected from measles. So measles is much more contagious. Um, and SARS and MERS, I think, were on the order of like three or four um, patients. So not all that different. And again, I think we just don't have a great understanding yet of transmission and how efficiently it's transmitted. I think it's too early to say that there hasn't been a tale or like what it's going to do. I think I wouldn't be surprised if there's more cases in the U.S. I wouldn't be surprised if there's going to be a healthcare worker or a secondary case, um, because I do think the spectrum of disease, you know, really plays a role. And especially if there's, you know, asymptomatic shedding, that'll that'll really. Can you just talk about what secondary? What was it? Um, secondary case, maybe. Yeah, secondary case. Yeah. So, what yeah, does so, that mean? So, a primary case. So, a secondary case means that they got it from that primary case, that first case. So, if somebody went to the market in Wuhan and became infected, but their family member got it from them, that that would be considered a secondary case. And there was, I mean, that's how they proved human to human transmission, right? Is because people who had no known uh, contact with the market were, were getting ill. Can you actually uh, talk about the, um, the, the virology in terms of the, where this virus um, initiated in Wuhan? Just like talk about the, the market versus the um, SARS and MERS. Yeah, I'll try. So our understanding, and genotypically, it's very similar to uh, a certain family tree member uh, that are found in bats. Um, and so it seems we know that SARS, the primary animal reservoir was bats, and then they spread it to other animals called civets. Um, and then the civets were sold in like the wet markets, and then they were spread to, um, to humans. And in MERS, it was bats to camel to humans. Um, so we have not found the intermediate host in coronavirus yet. So I think probably what's going to happen is they're going to identify a serologic test, you know, an antibody test, and that will enable them to do more epi study of how many, you know, what animals have this, you know, virus or what was exposed. And so then they'll be able to kind of narrow in on what the intermediate host was. Um, you know, as far as the the virus goes, you know, the major virulence factor is something called the S protein or the spike protein. That's actually why it has the name Corona, because it's like a, a Corona radiata or whatever with the little spikes coming out. And, and those spikes are the S protein. But that's what antibodies are formed against. That's what the vaccine is supposed to be based off of. So probably more to come in future months. It's the okay. year of the rat. And so it would be quite ironic and unfortunate if it was the originator oh. was from a rat, but maybe not if, if, the, if, it, if it's a seafood <laughs> market, but. Yeah, well, I'm sure that rats are to be found in many markets, <laughs> True. but uh, yeah, the conspiracy theorists would go crazy on that one probably. So. Okay. So what, what about our patients? We, we spoke earlier about kind of the social media buzz around it. What about our patients who are worried um, about the novel coronavirus? What should we be telling them, whether they have symptoms or not? Yeah. Preventive things. So I think the thing to emphasize still is it's very low. 
the risk in the United States is very low. Um, the most important thing is to wash your hands, avoid sick people, and get the flu shot. Um, you know, uh, the face mask uh, sales have been interesting to watch. So I guess, you know, places like Home Depot and all these other places are completely sold out of N95 masks. And I read a perspective about this that it, it actually can make things worse because it kind of gives you a false sense of security on the one yes. hand. So you have a mask. And so like, oh, yeah, I can be around sick people. No problem. Um, I don't need to wash my hands as much or something. And then people don't wear the mask properly or they take it off to talk on the phone or they reach under to eat or something and totally negates the whole purpose of the mask. So um, face mask is really not being recommended at this point. Um, and then the CDC did come out with a travel recommendation to avoid all non-essential travel to, to China um, if you can avoid it. So is there, um, you, you mentioned people aren't, aren't wearing their masks properly. Is there, um, is there a trick that I might not be aware of? Oh, well, you know, we all get fit tested for the N95. You know what I mean? And so people don't know, like, to do that little flap under your chin and to make sure the upper strap is here. And then I also think, I mean, we all want to take our mask off when we're in an isolation room, right? But we don't because we know not, you know, but I think lay people just probably don't have the same experience, you know, and we'll, oh, I'll just take it off to talk on the phone or talk to somebody that can't really hear what I'm saying. And One last question. What factors does the World Health Organization use to determine if an infection is going to be a public health emergency? I think the factors that they take in is what's the public health impact? Is the event unusual? What's the risk for international spread? And is there going to be a effect on international trade or economics? Because I think the impact on China with SARS was huge as far as the economic impact, and I think lasted for a long time. So I think those are the kind of decisions um, that get made or discussed by this emergency committee. You know, kind of like when we declare a state of emergency here after a natural disaster, for example, it opens up all this federal funding. And so I wonder if there's like a kind of a similar situation for but international. So uh, one last random thought that I got um, when I was in my research, I... Um, was looking up the intermediate, um, the, vec the animal vectors. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, I didn't know what a civet was. Mm -hmm. So I, so I Googled civets. So did um, I. <laughs> I had to look it up too. Which is hilarious because they oh. say it's a cat, but it kind of looks more like a ferret. Yeah. Agreed. <laughs> like a ferret mixed with a lemur. Yeah. they They look super cute. <laughs> yeah. Until they give you SARS. <laughs> until, right. right. <laughs> sure. I feel free to cut that, but. Uh. Yeah, it was good. It was good. I, I did it. I think I heard a different name for the civet. It was like a pot. I wrote it down. I just was like, what is this animal? I'm not sure. I was like, sounds like a car. I know. I, I almost went down <laughs> that rabbit civet. hole yesterday, but I, I stopped myself just in time. <laughs> yes. Well, this has been fantastic. You were really helpful, very informative. Oh, good. Thank you, Thank so, you much so much for, for inviting your time. Me. Yeah, no, yeah. it was fun. It made me, it was good. And with that, I'll leave you with a comment that Dr. Fisk had regarding influenza and comparing it to coronavirus. Yeah, I mean, I kind of get the sense of saying people are losing sight of the forest for the trees, you know. Um, and as we'll talk about in the podcast, the risk for coronavirus in the U.S. is really low, but flu continues to be a major threat. So as of last week, we had 15 million illnesses recorded by the CDC, 140,000 hospitalizations and over 8,000 deaths. And 54 of those were in kids. So 
people, you know, of course, I've gotten being an infectious disease doc. I've got family texting me and friends. And what do I do about this coronavirus? And my number one thing is to, if you haven't gotten your flu shot, please go get your flu shot. That's, <laughs> that should be the primary virus that you're concerned about right now. But I guess you know, it's exciting and it's a break from some of the other news cycles, I guess, um, to, to learn about coronavirus. But but anyway, that's certainly the primary concern as folks on the ground, as I'm sure you're aware, are seeing. So. Thanks so much for listening. I've been Dr. Shreya Trivedi, a hospitalist at NYU. Thank you to my co-host, Marty Freed, a primary care doctor at The Ohio State University, Dr. Stephen Liu, a Bellevue-tending NYU faculty, and Clem Lee, a University of Pennsylvania resident who helped do a really, really stellar job with the show notes and off-air produced this episode. Thank you to Harit Shah for editing this episode last minute and Salim Najer, a medical student at UVA, for the beautiful accompanying graphic. And thank you to ACP for the CME credit. Have a great day and remember to wash your hands. Take care. <laughs>